So, today I've got another Old Testament villain for you. His name was Abimelech. Now, Abimelech uh, is the name of several guys from the Old Testament, so it's best that we identify which Abimelech we are talking about. So in order to understand about Abimelech, we have to understand first about Gideon. His story found in Judges chapter 9, the story of Abimelech. And it takes place about 3,200 years ago. Uh, But his dad was Gideon. Gideon was the fifth judge of Israel. He asked God for a sign from his little woolly blanket. God gave him a sign, and uh, he defeated the mighty Midianite army of 135,000 with his rather anemic army of just 300. Like those odds, 135,000 versus 300. But when God is on your side, guess what? If he is for us, who can be against us? That's right. That's right. So after the defeat of the powerful Midianites, there was peace in the land for 40 years, the Bible says. So Gideon was no longer a military commander. He was busy in other ways. He returned home. He had lots of wives, and he had 70 sons. He was quite busy. He also had at least one concubine from Shechem uh, who gave birth to another son, and Abimelech was his name. Now, the word Abimelech, if you're following along in your sermon notes, means my father is king in Hebrew. My father is king. Uh, remember that because we'll be coming back to that point. Anyway, after Gideon died, an old man, the people of Israel forgot all about God, all about what Gideon had done, and began to worship Baal again. False gods, right? And so uh, enter Abimelech. He grew up to be a young man with dreams of living his legacy, and he wanted to become king of Israel, because my name means my father is king. I want to be king too. So he went to visit his hometown of Shechem, and there convinced his mom's family that he ought to be the next king of Israel. So they have this discussion. He's thinking, hmm, Gideon's gone. He had 70 sons. Do you want 70 rulers, or do you want just me? And besides, I'm one of you. I'm from Shechem. I'm one of your own. I'm a hometown boy. How about you support me, and I'll be the king of Israel? The only people standing in his way were his 70 brothers, but that was really no big problem. His relatives provided him with some campaign contributions for his political aspirations to become king of Israel. So he takes the money, and in 9.4, we see Abimelech hired some reckless troublemakers. They were really hit men i got to dispense with the competition. i got these 70 brothers. What am I going to do with them? So Abimelech and his homies went back to his dad's hometown, and he takes all of the 70 brothers, and he butchers them, all of his half-brothers, on a single stone. Wham, wham, wham. 70 heads come off. Huh, kind of bloody scene. Except one of them got away. The youngest one, the baby of the family. His name was Jotham. He escapes and he hides. And, and now Abimelech thinks, hey, I got it made. I've got the support of the people of Shechem. I can now fulfill my destiny. I will be king of Israel. I beheaded all my brothers. And now things are really looking good, right? So he thinks as the story goes. Well, he is crowned the king of Israel at Shechem. But his baby brother, Jotham, heard about it. He goes to the top of Mount Gerizim that looks down on Shechem, and he shouts down to the people below. He gives them a, a little message. He's shouting down, hey, listen up, people of Shechem. 
And so he tells them a story. It's recorded for us in Judges chapter 9. I won't go through the story, but it's about an olive tree, a fig tree, a grapevine, and a thorn bush. So to keep things simple, let me summarize what he was saying to them. He's saying, uh, you guys, you men of Shechem, you have destroyed Gideon's family. You've forgotten all that he did for you in delivering you from the Midianites. What are you doing? Come on now. This Abimelech, he's not the rightful king. He has no claim to the throne. You're going to get burned by this if you don't stop this nonsense now. And he gives them this little prophecy about fire coming out from Abimelech. Huh. Well, story time ends. Jotham splits. He joins the witness protection program because he's scared to death of what his brother Abimelech is going to do if he ever catches him. So he runs away. And away he goes. Some would say it's bad karma. Others would say what goes around comes around. Scripture would say it's the principle of reaping and sowing, but at any rate, after three years, just three years, he was in office as the king. The people of Shechem are sick of him. We don't like you anymore. We don't like the way you're ruling. We don't like your policies. In fact, we want to kill you just after three years. So they set up this little trap to ambush him, get rid of him. But understand, there's much more happening in the heavenlies, and we'll talk about this in just a moment. There's always things happening in the heavenlies that we don't understand down here. And we might think we got to figure it out. We don't have a clue because God is orchestrating, God is planning, and God is at work. Here's how it unfolds. Judges 9.22, after Abimelech had ruled over Israel for three years, God sent a spirit that stirred up trouble between Abimelech and the leading citizens of Shechem, and they revolted. Who's responsible for this, by the way, according to that verse? The tension between the leading citizens of Shechem and Abimelech who said, uh, uh, we don't want you for a king. In fact, we're going to vote you out of office. We're going to impeach you. We're going to do whatever, right? Who's orchestrating all this? It's not politicians. Are you kidding me? If we believe in a sovereign God, he is at work in ways that are just unimaginable. This goes way beyond wherever we end up politically. Understand that. So God sends a spirit. This spirit stirs up trouble. God was punishing Abimelech for murdering Gideon's 70 sons and the citizens of Shechem for supporting him in this treachery of murdering his brothers. God's at work here. Did you forget about what you did back there? Uh, hmm. So their plan backfires when somebody told Abimelech of the trap. They say, uh, guess what? They want to ambush you, and they're going to kill you. Uh, don't go that way. And so Abimelech doesn't. But these guys are persistent, so they, they team up with this guy named Gaal, God whips up the locals in a frenzy, so he recruits a small army there in Shechem to overthrow Abimelech. We're going to get rid of this guy one way or another. But Zebel, the ruler of Shechem, doesn't like Gal, doesn't like his brothers either. And so he's super ticked off, and he tells Abimelech about the plan. They're going to kill you. They're going to kill you. Hmm. So he suggests to Abimelech, why don't you go to Shechem? Hide your armies in the fields surrounding the city and then get them, get them, ambush them like they were going to ambush you. Hmm. So in the morning, Gal was standing in the city gates with Zebel, the ruler, when Abimelech makes his move and advances. And Gal's thought, huh, what's that? What's going on out there? He sees something moving up in the hills. 
Zebul says to God, you better get your eyes checked, son. Uh, what are you seeing? He says, no, I see something moving up in the hills. It looks like men. What? I don't think so. So he says, it's just the shadows on the hills that look like men. God says, no way. Those are guys coming down. What's going on here? Hmm. Love Zebul's response. Now where's that big mouth of yours? <laughs> Wasn't you that said, who is Abimelech and why should we be his servants? The men you mocked are right outside the city. Go out and fight him, big boy. Come on. Come on. And so Abimelech launches a surprise attack against Gaul's army there in Shechem. Abimelech's fighters push Gaul back into the city. And then, because it's getting dark, they call timeout. Timeout. Stop fighting. Let's go eat. Get a good night's rest. Then we'll start the war again in the morning. Okay? When we can all see each other. And so the next morning, Abimelech ambushes the army. He overruns Shechem. He destroys the crops. He kills everyone in the city except the leading citizens who had barricaded themselves inside this big tower that was kind of the center of the city of Shechem. It was actually a temple for Baal. And so they all flee into this tower, right? Here they go. Abimelech wasn't done yet. So he and his guys get this brilliant plan. What we're going to do is we're going to go chop down all these branches. We're going to put all these branches, stack them up at the base of the tower. We're going to light the thing, and then the fire is going to consume, and we're going to have the tower fall over. Hmm, sounds like a plan, right? The Bible says 1,000 men and women were killed inside of that structure. Now, this might be a good time to remember Jotham's tree story. And here's what he said. Fire would come out of Abimelech and devour the leading citizens of Shechem. Sure did. Because who's in control? God's in control. Absolutely. This was prophesied before this. So our story is almost over. Abimelech marches his army to another city, Thebes, captures it just like he did Shechem. Man, he's got good strategy going for him. Once again, all the survivors go into the center of the city where there's this big tower, once again, and they climb up to the roof this time realizing, hey, it worked pretty good the last time. Let's try this plan again. Let's go get a bunch of branches and trees, put them at the base of the tower, start them on fire, and then watch what happens. It's going to be just like Shechem. Huh. Let's see how this thing works out. Well, this story has a different ending. As he begins to light the fires, and they begin uh, to... The flames begin to go up and up and up. Uh, this woman leans over and drops a heavy stone off the tower right onto Abimelech's head and bashes in his skull, the Bible says. So, you got this real tall tower. woman leans over, takes the rock, drops it off, hits him right in the head. Now, the helmets were not quite... He wasn't wearing one, right? So this did some damage. Did some damage. Now, it's kind of ironic that Abimelech had killed all of his brothers on one stone, and it's one millstone that took him out. God's closing the loop on this thing. So anyway, his skull is crushed. Abimelech knows he's about to die. In his final moments, he realizes, hey, this isn't going to read well in history for me, even though it's 3,200 years from when that happened. Hmm. This isn't going to go well, and people are going to read about me, and they're going to say, he was killed by a woman. That's not real good. Not real good. His legacy in jeopardy, he has a servant running through with a sword rather than dying at the hands of a woman as we come to the end of the chapter. And so the revolt is over. Nothing to see here, folks. Everybody goes home. And that's the story of Abimelech. Hmm. The question is, what can we learn from his life? 
What is God saying to us now? The Bible ends the story of Abimelech in chapter 9 with his last verse. In this way, God punished Abimelech for the evil he had done against his father by murdering his 70 brothers. And understand, these Old Testament stories and characters are so very important for us. Paul would write that these stories are collected and preserved and written for us as an example and as a warning and as an encouragement. And so the first two-thirds of your Bible is called the Old Testament. The Old Testament is very, very important to our faith. In fact, I spend about 90% or better of my personal Bible reading time in the Old Testament. You say, well, why? Isn't Jesus, uh, yeah, everything's about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. I preach and teach much from the New Testament. I spend a lot of time studying the New Testament. But when it comes to my own personal Bible reading, over 90% is done from the Old Testament because the stories there are incredibly powerful. And not about you, but I like stories. They stick in my head. And I can learn a lot from stories. And so that's the reason to to warn us, to encourage us, to be an example for us. So let me give you a few observations as if I were looking at this in my own personal Bible reading. Number one has to do uh, with the fact that as we uh, talked about when we began the series, Cain, Cain was the first child born, also the first murderer, and his brother was the first murder victim. Remember that? We talked about that. So now we come to Abimelech. Do you think Abimelech was a murderer? Uh, This is the interactive portion of our service. Do you think Abimelech was a murderer? Yeah, he chopped off the head of his brothers, right? That's not a good thing to do necessarily. Was he a murderer? Yes, he was a murderer. Okay. Now, what do you guys think of the mass shootings in this country? What do you think about it? They're terrible. They're tragic. They're heartbreaking, aren't they? And the victims and their families. What do you think we ought to do with the guys who pull the trigger? Just asking. Those that don't off themselves in the process and they're taken alive, what do you think we ought to do with them? We shouldn't kill them, right? Some would say, yes, we should. Some would say, no, we shouldn't. That's not the intent of this morning. Are they murderers? Yeah. They should be punished. We'd all agree with that. The degree and severity, that's something up for discussion. Some would say, yes, eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. Take their life for theirs. Others would say, no, Jesus wouldn't do that. That whole discussion on capital punishment, that's for another time. My point is this. What do you do with a murderer? What do you do with a murderer? Punish them. So my question is, are you a murderer? It's the one I asked with Cain. Now you say, oh man, you've got to be kidding me. You can't compare someone actually taking another person's life with the words of Jesus. Or, or can I? Because here's here's what Jesus said. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. I didn't kill anybody. (laughs) 
You see, God's far more concerned about the intent of our heart than he is with the action. The action will be judged because it's from the heart that proceed all of these things. It's out of the heart, Jesus would say. It's the overflow of the heart that good or bad actions come. So he's most interested in what's going on in our heart. And you can say, well, I never murdered anybody. But understand, God's economy, if we hate and say we hate someone, if we are angry with our brother, we have murdered him. That's why Jesus taught and that's why they killed him because his teaching is like you got to be kidding me man you got to be kidding me i'm a murderer if i get angry with someone is there anybody in this room that has never been angry with another person this morning <laughs> yeah this morning <laughs> yeah. yeah right right okay so my question is you're not like them right those mass shooters you're not like them are you a murderer let me just ask you that are you a murderer According to Jesus' definition, are you a murderer? Yes. yes. Okay. So I didn't kill anybody. That's not what I asked. And that's not what Jesus is asking me. Now, what do you think the punishment is for a murder? You said a murderer should be punished, right? You get angry with people? You're a murderer. What punishment do you get? There's still consequences. There's still punishment to that action. Would you agree with that? Yeah, there's always consequences. But here's what I think. (laughs) I think that Jesus is absolutely incredible because there's a murder indictment against me. And on that cross, he canceled that. And he took upon himself the punishment that was due me for the fact that I'm a murderer. That's the amazing thing that Jesus did. He took our penalty and our punishment that was due us upon himself. And when I lean into his grace and forgiveness, I am freed from that. Isn't that great news? Because every single man here is an adulterer. Is that right, Steve? Why would I say that? Because that's what Jesus said. I tell you that if you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. There's not a man in this room that's not an adulterer and a murderer and broken every one of the Ten Commandments. And I'm so grateful that Jesus took my penalty and my punishment for that. And I can stand here this morning and sing about the freedom that I have, that the chains are broken, and that he has set me free from this. And that's the really great news, is it not? Come on now. I'm not defined by the fact I'm a murderer. I'm defined by the fact that I'm a new creation in Christ. And he has set me free. That's the really good news. Are we walking in that freedom? But let's be real for a moment. We all want to be king. Just like Abimelech. My father's king, that's my name. I want to be king. We all want to be king. But there's one big difference between God and me. A really huge difference between God and me. God knows that he's not me. Sometimes I forget I'm not him. 
Isn't that silly? Why would I try to be God? He doesn't want to try to be like me. Big difference between God and me. He knows. He's not me. Wow. Secondly, there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. God was fully in control of all the events that surround Abimelech's life, all the political posturing, all the comings and goings of judges and kings, all the nations at his disposal and his control. God's working out a plan. And sometimes we get in our lane and we're so narrow and we forget there's a much bigger plan unfolding. And we say, you don't know what happened to me this week. No, probably not. But I, you know what? It's happened to me too, and it's happened to the person beside you and back even in front of you. It's happening to all of us. But there's more than meets the eye. It's more than this isolated incident. God is working on a plan that, that may be hundreds or thousands of years in the making. That's the kind of God we serve. Here's how Paul would say it. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, <laughs> on the inside, where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. There is far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow, but the things we can't see now will last forever. And so I'm saying, would you elevate just for a moment what you're looking at and all these problems that seem to be crushing us? There's something happening here. It's more than meets the eye. And if we truly believe that God is in control, even of this tough thing we're facing right now, He can set us free. And we're not laboring under that burden because there's something happening here. God works in mysterious ways. Is that in the Bible, true or false? False. That is not in the Bible. Is it true? Yeah, but it's not in the Bible. Okay? So, God is working out a plan, and it's more than meets the eye. And some of us came in here so, so bound up because of some of the things that are happening in our life right now. And I'm saying just elevate just for a moment and look upon Jesus. And his plan is good, and it's right, and he is for you, not against you. And oh, how he loves you. He's working out something far greater. And lastly, we tend to live by what we can see. At least I do. But we need faith, don't we? Because Hebrews 11 says, without faith it's impossible to please God, but with faith mountains can move. Faith, absolutely necessary. So here's what Paul said again. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now, many of us have memorized this verse. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good. Hmm. Hmm. God causes everything to work together for the good to those who love him. Well, let me ask you this. What does everything mean? This one isn't a trick question, by the way. What does everything mean? Pretty much everything. Yeah? Everything means everything. Now, this takes faith to understand just those words, right? 
God causes everything to work together for good. You don't know what just happened to me. You don't know what I'm going through. How can there be any good in this? I didn't say that what happened is good. I'm saying that God is working this for his glory and your good. It's a plan. It's in process. I'm not saying what happened is good because it's painful and it hurts and it still hurts right now. But what I am saying is this. If we believe in this God who is sovereign in control of all things, even in Abimelech's life, then we have to say that everything, if we truly love God, everything is working together for his glory and our good. God, give me the faith to believe this. Because right now, I'm, I'm really struggling with this, right? How can this ever turn out good? There's nothing good about this. But I'm telling you, that's what God specializes in. The impossible. Walking by faith or walking by sight? That's a choice each of us have to make right now. What does everything look like in your life right now? That one word, everything. And whatever you're facing, put that in that verse. Just put that situation in that verse and make it personalized then. God causes this, that thing that's on your heart right now, that's on your mind right now, to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Do you believe this? That thing right there. Everything. He really does. It's working together for good. Hang in there. Don't give up. Stay by this stuff. Stay by this stuff. God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I have to ask myself, what does everything look like in my life right now? What does everything look like? What are some of the things that have happened in my life just recently? What does that look like? Can I trust him? What's happened yesterday or this week or this month or this year or the last decade? Can I trust him? Can I trust him? What does everything look like working together for good? One of the things that I've been focusing on lately is the fact that God is a, has us as a church family as a part of a sending church, and that's pretty cool. I look at our history, and uh, I'll leave some out here, but I think of, of Scott and Katie Wiggins departing and uh, going to the Middle East and now serving in Berlin, sent from this church. I, I think of Kevin and Amy Waylage, remember them? Going full-time with the CNMA ministry in Muncie, Indiana. I think of Greg, or the whole Emley family, uh, currently leave, going from here and now pastoring well in Minnesota doing a great job there. I think of the Coonies uh, being sent from here, called later in life into ministry, and away they go, uh, serving in several churches that are currently in Melrose, Wisconsin, pastoring, sent from this church. I think of uh, the McKinsters who left this church to go pastor in Montana and now are helping with the, the restart of the Belgium church. Uh, I, I think of Anna Reiskatel, Anna Reiskatel going to the Middle East for several years, supported by us and ministering to international students there. I think of a couple of weeks ago when Jesse Dowdy was here, being sent from here, uh, pastoring in Iron Mount, Michigan, and now uh, looking to plant a church in the northern part of Minneapolis. 
all sent from here. I think of the, uh, the families that we sent to Belgium for their restart uh, recently. I think of the team driving back from Toledo right now, having sent them out. It's in our DNA. It's a part of reaching our world. And so it takes faith to send our very best. It always does, and that's what God asks us to do. Uh, so Liz, come and give us an update.